Hello, and welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. We are very honored to have Jean Bauer, the founder of Farm Sanctuary, pioneer and national, I would say, global leader of farm animal protection movement. You've been hailed as the conscience of the food movement by Time Magazine. I'm very honored to have you here. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm great. It's wonderful to be here with you, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I've been, of course, uh, of course, everybody knows about you. If you know anything about sanctuaries, I think somehow people eventually stumble upon Farm Sanctuary. Um, it's been 34 years since you founded Farm Sanctuary, correct? It was 19. Yeah, we started in 1986. 1986. So uh, I think I read an article where, I, th I think, I'm not sure, where you were also hailed as the father of the sanctuary movement? Well, possibly. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, Farm Sanctuary was the first farm sanctuary, and we were founded in 1986. There are now hundreds of farm sanctuaries, if not thousands, around the world, but we were the first. So I guess in that sense, I guess you could say that I and my ex-wife, Lori, were the sort of... Uh, you know, father, mother of the farm sanctuary movement or whatever you want to call it. It's the first in the world, not just North America. That yes, I believe of. so. I mean, at the time there were animal shelters for right. cats and dogs. There were individuals who sometimes would, you know, sometimes grow up on a farm and they get connected to a particular animal and let them live. But there was never really a farm sanctuary that was created to rescue animals from the factory farming system to speak out against animal agriculture and to encourage people to see animals as friends, not food. So that's really sort of core to what Farm Sanctuary does is to stop factory farming, change how we relate to farm animals and promote compassion and vegan living. And, and we were the first to do that. And, and now there are many organizations around the world doing similar work. Right, it's, it's really incredible. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about what has developed since then. I mean, I, it's it's massive, but since you're a pioneer and, and essentially founded this movement of these incredible uh, sanctuaries and organizations across the planet, more and more developing with time, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. And maybe there were landmark moments over time where you sat back and looked and you're like, wow, this, this, is, this is really happening uh, planet-wide. Yeah. Well, when Farm Sanctuary started back in 1986, you know, we had no clue that it would grow and that there would be this sort of movement around it. Um, you know, we started basically to expose the cruelty of factory farming and started with documenting cruelty at stockyards, slaughterhouses, factory farms, investigating these places, hoping to expose the conditions. And we believed somewhat naively that when people see, saw the cruelty, they wouldn't want to support it and would want to go vegan. You know, simple as that. But it's a lot more complex, of course. There are systems and structures in place that we need to deal with. Um, but that's how it started. And we just responded to various needs from time to time. So during our investigations, we would find living animals who were thrown in trash cans or left on piles of dead animals. And we started rescuing them. And that's really how the sanctuaries began. Um, and then people wanted to visit. So when we got the farm in upstate New York, we then built overnight accommodations because people wanted to stay overnight. We built a visitor facility and we do tours. We tell the animal stories. So this has all been really in response to various needs. 
And, and that continues today. Um, and I think that it's very exciting that so many people want to operate sanctuaries, want to care for animals, want to speak out against animal agriculture and promote a more compassionate way. That's beautiful. The challenge with sanctuaries though, is that they do require a lot of resources, you know, land, labor, um, time and energy. And I think that is important to do this work, but also to leverage this work for bigger systemic change. Um, you know, because it is possible to get sort of overwhelmed by the daily animal care and the feeling that you need to rescue all of the animals. There are literally billions of animals raised and slaughtered every year. Uh, farm sanctuaries cannot rescue even a small fraction of yeah. that. So we need to do what we can to help the individuals we can while also working to change the system. And that is becoming more and more apparent to me that systemic change is the only way that we're ultimately going to prevent animals from suffering and and, and, and achieving our mission of creating a, a compassionate vegan world. Right. That's a great point. That's the central point. Um, also, when you founded Farm Sanctuary, it was vegan from the start. It had a vegan ethos from the start. That's also groundbreaking. Um, yeah. Yeah, there were not that many vegans back in the 1980s. No, there weren't. But not many. And the concept of living a vegan lifestyle was very foreign or very unfamiliar to many people. And so, you know, the idea that you could live well without harming other animals and by eating plants instead of animals was very new. Uh, and or actually, I shouldn't say it was new. Um, I mean, the vegan society has been around since the 1940s. Uh, and Pythagoras, you know, the Greek mystic philosopher, mathematician, musician, was vegan back, you know, thousands of years ago. So the concept is not new, uh, but in our current time, it it's, it's, was relatively unknown and it's becoming better known, which I'm very happy about. Right, as a movement, the, the sort of vegan movement, that's very, I mean, that's, I'm sure it has, there's a, somebody's done a thesis somewhere where it charts, you know, when it became a real movement, but back in 86, I mean, yeah, we didn't even have social media back then. You know? <laughs> yeah, we did our undercover investigations. We'd go in, videotape, and then make video copies and take those to the local press, right? So that was so much VHS cassettes, right? Yeah, the VHS cassettes, exactly. Right. And in terms of food, I mean, of course, you could have existed on a whole food plant-based diet back in the 60s. I mean, that's not new, but, but things like I remember, and I'm a native Californian like you, uh, maybe... Uh, plant-based milk um, in the late 80s, 90s, there's only a couple of varieties and now look, it's just exploded. So a lot has changed, but that's, that's pretty radical that you guys were already doing it in, yeah, in the mid 80s. So yes, yes. And, and also, you know, when we got the farm in Watkins Glen, New York in 1989, um, we started getting visitors in the early 90s. So part of what we did as outreach was talk to restaurants in Watkins Glen, New York, asking them to sell vegan food for our visitors. So that was another response, right? When people visited and stayed overnight, they needed vegan food. And one of the places we went to was Burger King, who actually was open-minded and sold a veggie burger in Watkins Glen in like 1992 or 1993 that led to the BK Veggie nationwide. We had a whole campaign around it. 
you know, trying to get Burger King. So that happened. It wasn't, and so they did sell the BK veggie nationwide starting in the mid nineties. Uh, and then more recently they introduced the impossible Whopper to much more fanfare and much more acclaim. And, you know, it looks a lot more and tastes a lot more, more like, you know, a burger that their people are used to. So, uh, but we, that was part of our activism, you know, promoting, solutions in addition to talking about the cruelty and the problems with factory farming and and i'm and and we will continue to work on stopping cruelty but i think that promoting solutions is really important it's extremely important yeah and exciting and um i think it helps with the um, advocacy work i really i really admire all of you in sanctuaries and when you talk about uh when you spoke about you your early work in, in the mission to expose the cruelty that was happening. I mean, I, I put myself in that situation. It must be very, very hard work um, encountering those animals, I think. Um, it requires real certain fortitude. So I, I love the idea of also promoting solutions, exposing the cruelty, all of it working together. Yes, I think it has to. I mean, if you're just looking at problems and cruelty over and over, it, it's not a healthy situation for anybody, you know, and, I, and rescuing animals, in addition to helping the animals, was a way to heal ourselves. Mm. You know, seeing this violence and this cruelty over and over is really difficult. Absolutely. Um, so I, I would like to hear, connected with the growth of the vegan movement, if you have um, some thoughts about sustainability also connected to um, all of us in the movement broader, you don't have to be a vegan to be thinking about sustainability, but um, if you have some general thoughts or specific sustainability issues that you're keying in on right now. Yeah, well, I think that as the vegan movement grows, you know, and, and, and my experience, you know, in the 80s and the 90s was that we focused primarily on animal cruelty in the factory farm system and working to stop that. And and that's still an important part of what we do. But in addition, I think there are other systems of violence and oppression and exploitation that are part of it. You know, like palm oil, for example, that's oftentimes in vegan products, but it comes from areas where animals and nature are being harmed. And so that's part of the discussion. Plastics, you know, which we often use in packaging, um, are getting into the environment, getting into the oceans and killing animals and destroying nature and harming nature. So, and then you also have injustice and, you know, people that work on farms or work in say the chocolate trade, for example, who are very much exploited. And so I think the vegan movement is expanding its perspective to recognize that in addition to not harming farm animals who are domesticated and violently mistreated every day and are among the most abused creatures on the planet uh, there are other forms of oppression and abuse that we as vegans need to be mindful of and take action to address you know this includes oppression to people you know people who work on farms people who work in slaughterhouses um, the systemic racism that exists in countries like the u.s where you have um, policies that have been unfair and led to capital inequity going into the hands of mainly white farmers, for example, and where farmers, you know, people of color who have had farmland have lost it because of certain policies. 
And um, these are the kinds of systems that I think we need to look at and try to remedy. And so for me, um, you know, my belief is that we can Im be empowered through healthy plant-based food choices. There's a, an activist in LA named Ron Finley who did a TED talk and he, he says, growing your own food is like printing your own money. So he works to encourage gardening uh, on land in the city that's not being used otherwise. So I think that there are ways for us to create systems and opportunities to empower people who have historically been dis disenfranchised. So through food policy shifts and new practices towards plant-based agriculture and access to healthy whole plant foods, we can create job opportunities, we can create health, we can create uh, you know, wealth ultimately you know, among those who are doing the work instead of what has typically been the pattern, which is that those who are doing the work, and in some cases, perhaps improving the land through regenerative organic practices, uh, don't benefit as much as the landowner, right? So there's these kind of systemic issues that I think we need to look at and create structures that empower um, a healthier, more diverse, uh, ecologically sound, uh, community-oriented plant-based food system. So to me, that's the direction we need to move and the um, system we need to create. And a lot of that, I think, is going to come from the ground up. Right. Exactly. Well, as you know, at Pacific Roots Magazine, one of my, the heart of the coverage includes vegan farming. So I'm really glad you brought that up because in a recent podcast with our mutual friends, the uh, Lancaster uh, Farm Sanctuary, they mentioned you, uh, they referenced you in saying, they think they, uh, I think they first heard of the term plant-based community-oriented agriculture through you. And then I also read a great entry you wrote um, on Farm Sanctuary Typepad, I guess the blog, um, about vegan farming. And so I, I really love that you brought that up because for me that's um, somebody else I know referred to vegan agriculture as the missing link. Um, so to me it's extremely exciting. It's like the next level but it's here it's now people are doing it so this is another this is another realm like sanctuaries that i think there's people maybe even listening who've never been to a sanctuary who've never heard of them so they're they might learn like through this um and then maybe go visit their first sanctuary i think that's always a very powerful experience but also vegan farming some people have never held or seen a vegetable or a fruit that was veganically grown they might not even considered i mean I, it was only until recently that I myself began thinking about vegan, veganically grown produce. So um, would love to hear your thoughts about that as well. What's happening with vegan farms, sort of network in North America, maybe globally, what you're excited to see. Do you have a garden growing? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did, you know. I, 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 live, I live here in a townhouse in Arlington, Virginia, but mm -hmm. I still have like a little container garden and you know occasionally we'll put some seeds out in the back and maybe something will grow right. but uh, I'm not unfortunately a gardener at this time uh, but uh, as I travel I've been fortunate to visit a number of folks who are doing veganic gardening veganic farming mm -hmm. and this year I went to a place in Atlanta called Grow Where You Are which is a, a veganic farm beautiful to see the work they're doing I visited one called Eco Suburbia in Mesa, Arizona, uh, also a veganic farm 
and so I'm inspired to learn from these folks who are already doing this work on the ground. And it is something that wherever I go, I speak about and I encourage people to do where they can, if they can. Um, and there are examples of folks, you know, I mentioned Ron Finley in LA. Um, there's also Harlem Grown in New York City area where they're actually growing produce on plots of land that are otherwise not being used. So mm -hmm. that's a positive thing. There's a group called Green Bronx Machine, a teacher named Steve Ritz, who um, teaches in the Bronx. And many of his kids come to school from, you know, difficult backgrounds. And he used to have something like a 40% attendance rate in his school. And then he started teaching kids to plant plants and to grow their own food. Now he has more than a 90% attendance rate. And some of these kids are now becoming entrepreneurs and doing gardens for people around the New York City area. So this kind of empowerment through food and agriculture and through connecting with the earth and the land. And, and to me, there is so much opportunity there, uh, not only to grow healthy food and to create a healthier ecosystem and you know, sequester carbon <laughs> into healthy soil, um, but also to create hope and to create new opportunities, you know, especially in places where there doesn't seem to be a lot of opportunity. Right. So absolutely back to this term, the, the phrase plant-based community oriented agriculture. Can you just sort of summarize, I think you basically just did, but um, first of all, how this came up because it was, I've heard, you know, vegan agriculture is pretty common, but I think you've coined, this is, I think you've coined it, plant-based community-oriented agriculture. Yeah, no, I, I think I probably did, and it was, it's descriptive, you know, and what is veganic? You know, one of the big questions is, does that have animal manure in it, right, or not? You know, so sometimes with the vegan term, it gets very much, you know, distilled down into ingredients, right. you know, and, and the fact is, even with veganic agriculture, where you're not exploiting animals, very likely that a bird from the wild might come in and sit on a branch and poop. So it's actually animal manure in there, right? So, which some veganic farmers actually like. I've talked to, you know, veganic farmers that, that actually think that's part of their project or process in their system that's healthy. Right. So by saying plant-based, you know, it's, you know, there is maybe some animal inputs, but not exploited animal inputs. Um, and community-oriented, it's connected to the community, and that's the human community, uh, but also the broader community of life, other animals and other plants, and how do we live together? And one of the other things I've been thinking a lot about lately is the idea of mutuality, as opposed to um, the common factory farming practice of extraction and exploitation, which applies to animals, who are exploited and their lives are taken from them, their milk is taken from them, their eggs are taken. So there's this exploitation and extraction of, to animals, to workers who are exploited, to the earth who is exploited and, and um, you know, the soil is destroyed and toxic pollution is spread and waterways are polluted. So this is a system of extraction and exploitation and disrespect. And we need to create a new system based on mutuality, where we live with other animals in ways that are mutually beneficial. And these can be wild animals, as well as domesticated animals, as well as interactions between people, mutually beneficial relationships, 
instead of relationships based on extraction. And, and sort of at the core of all of this is power and power dynamics. And, and those who have power tend to exploit and appropriate and take from those that don't have power. So that's you know, part of the systemic change we need to, to create where um, those with power have historically had access to capital and to land and to resources. We need to shift that so that folks historically who have been denied these things have better access to capital and to land and to resources. And um, I also tend to think that when things get very big, they can tend to get messed up. So, you know, this is where the community-oriented, more local or regional agriculture systems, I think, make more sense than this industrial monocrop model. So, so that's where the community-oriented plant-based agriculture idea, I think, kind of sprung from, this idea of, yeah, community and mutuality, you know, as opposed to extraction. That's great. You, do you have already some writing up about that? You know, I've written some on it, and it's something I've actually been interested in for a long time. I think I, we found a blog from like 2009 that I wrote about, you know. Right. But even prior to that, um, I'd been interested in this idea of solutions mm -hmm. because just talking about problems over and over uh, ultimately can be very depressing and, and not productive. Um, and rescuing animals is part of a solution, but you can't rescue nearly the number of animals you need to. So you need to change the system. So for a long time, I have been interested in solutions and veganic agriculture is one of those. One of them. The concept of veganic and organic and regenerative agriculture is evolving along with the concept of community-oriented plant-based agriculture. Right. <clears throat> well, speaking of solutions also, you've worked over time with groundbreaking legislation, um, for perhaps also obviously a pioneer in that area, helping to um, restrict certain inhumane practices in industrial animal agriculture. I'm curious if you're working on anything now or have plans to. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, over the years, much of our focus has been on stopping bad things. You know, legislation to prevent animals too sick to walk, downed animals, from being dragged onto trucks and taken to slaughter, for example. And we were able to succeed in preventing downed cows from going to slaughter, and we're still working to prevent other downed animals, like pigs, for example, from going to slaughter. So that's an ongoing effort. Um, we've worked on legislation, including initiatives, to ban the inhumane confinement of animals in cages and crates where they can't turn around or move freely. So we've worked on anti-confinement legislation for many years. We've worked on legislation to ban the production and sale of foie gras, where birds have pipes jammed down their throats, force-feeding force them so their livers get to be 10 times the normal size. So these are all cruel systems that we've worked to prohibit incrementally. So stopping bad things is part of what we do, but increasingly I think it's going to be important to provide opportunities to do good things and to start tilting government programs and subsidies to support plant-based agriculture instead of um, subsidizing and enabling factory farming, which has been happening for decades and it's an entrenched system that we need to start unrooting. And thankfully we're 
uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm here in the Washington DC area, so I'm in touch with folks in government. And there have been some positive things happening. Uh, for example, you know, plant-based farmers sometimes get government money. And there was a USDA blog, for example, that highlighted the work of a veganic farmer. Oh, yeah. And we use the term veganic in the US. Uh, was that uh, in Vermont, the farm in Vermont? Yes, yes yeah. That's yes. Yeah, that was great. Yes, so, so, so when you have farmers like the, this one up in Vermont that are doing veganic agriculture and getting USDA money, I think that that's a very positive example and a positive model that can be replicated. Absolutely. Also, do you think, um, as an individual, as a citizen, as somebody who doesn't, you know, write legislature, this, you can feel helpless. One, one can feel helpless. So from a consumer and individual perspective, um, the way I see it is that also governments uh, might respond when they also see, and companies, of course, businesses, when they see that consumer interest beginning to tilt as well. So the, really the power of the people. I think as an individual, I do see this. People feel kind of helpless. Like, how can I, ch I can't change this. Don't show me this stuff, whatever. But um, if we do sort of transform that into recognizing our own power as consumers, that will also affect the system. I absolutely agree. You know, there are many things in this world that are hard for us to control. But when it comes to what we eat, we can have a lot of control over that, and that does empower us. And when we vote with our dollars to support a certain kind of system, you know, plant-based agriculture, for example, as opposed to the factory farm animal-based system, um, we are voting for a new type of system. Business pays attention, and as business starts making money on plant-based agriculture, they're going to then have the opportunity to influence the political process, because unfortunately, a big part of it has to do with, you know, it's been said that we have the best government money can buy, which is kind of true, unfortunately. So, um, so by shifting the economics, you're going to also shift policy, I believe. Great. Well, I am coming up. I had, uh, those are my main questions. I have, uh, lastly, first, it was such a great honor to speak with you. Um, I could speak much longer, but, um, as I work in media, and you have been in these this, this realm with all these issues and more for decades, um, I did want to know and seek your advice on things that you know you you've you've been at the heart of coverage and you've seen media develop around these issues over the past few decades. So, for those within media wanting to help create very conscious, informed media, do you have any advice, thoughts? moving forward about, you know, coverage of these many issues, some that we haven't even touched on that are also related. Yeah, well, you know, I think that sometimes in the media, um, you know, there is a sort of temptation to make things um, entertaining or, or, or uh, enraging, which also brings eyeballs to advertisers, right? So unfortunate current trends, it seems like, which has also led to more polarization and people sort of going to their own little tribe and staying in that. Um, and, and, and then not looking at bigger principles and not being able to hear other perspectives. So I think it's so important to listen to different perspectives, even of those who you don't agree with, 
Um, you know, Benjamin Franklin said, if everybody thinks the same way, nobody's thinking. So it's really important to have diverse opinions and to be a critical thinker, you know, instead of being tribal and saying, well, this is my team and this is what we believe. And, you know, we may all jump into that from time to time. It feels very validating for everybody to be agreeing with us. And we're in our own little bubble talking about how, how wrong everybody else is. Right. That's the healthiest way to look at the world, right? So humility is critical. Being respectful of others, even if you disagree with them. And being kind to others, even if you disagree with them. Um, you know, denigrating somebody who you disagree with doesn't do anybody ultimately any good and can't control what others are going to say. So if somebody says something that is upsetting to you, you know, you cannot necessarily control their conduct, but you can control your reaction to it. And that's really important. So I think principles of, uh, you know, honesty, openness, transparency, um, inclusion, listening to different perspectives. Diversity, listening to different perspectives is really important. And um, just being aware that uh, as human beings, you know, we have a, a, a variety of um, fallibilities <laughs> and to remain humble and open-minded and recognize that none of us has all the answers and that it's necessary to listen to others. And, and when I um, talk about these issues with the media or with anybody really. Um, I try to make it as objective and approachable as possible as opposed to uh, sounding accusatory. Right. You know, for instance, the idea uh, you know, that meat is murder. You know, I may believe this and I may have said it back in the day. Uh, and nowadays, you know, there's a lot of talk about humane animal production, humane slaughter. So instead of saying there's no such thing as humane slaughter, which I also may believe, um, I will try to phrase it in a way that will engage people and get them thinking instead of in a way that puts up walls. By saying there's no such thing as humane slaughter, I've now staked a position. If they disagree with it or if they feel guilty because they're participating in it, they're not going to really want to think. So I'll, I'll try to create some space and opportunity to think through. And I'll often say, now, when you think about it, so a little bit of space, a little pause. Do the words humane and the word slaughter fit very well together? So now it's kind of framed in a different way where somebody can critically think about whether the word humane and the word slaughter fit very well together. And I think most people would not think they fit very well together. So, you know, I think that sort of a technique that I apply to try to open up hearts and build bridges instead of shutting people down and creating walls. So that, to me, a big part of this is opening hearts, opening minds, and uh, creating a situation where people are able to think critically and openly uh, without shutting down. Yeah, that is fantastic advice. I think many of us have been through a sequence of what you're talking about and at some point in time may have used certain language that was very, very um, wall constructing and and realizing it's it just it usually just births more frustration and um it's not, especially in this era of digital media and everybody's always communicating it's frustrating to have blocked conversations so 
that is very valuable, keeping in mind with the open hearts and open minds. Also, recently trending in media, I would like to ask you about this. Um, Joaquin? Oh, yeah. That was, uh, was he with, you were with him, or he was with you, you were together for the, for the uh, adoption, was it a mother and calf? Yes, it's, it's amazing how things happen. And I, I have to say, I have huge admiration for Joaquin Phoenix and how he's using his platform to raise awareness about factory farming and various other injustices. You know, at each of his, you know, awards acceptance speeches, like the Golden Globes or BAFTA or SAG or the Oscars, he's raised important issues. And so he won the Oscar for Best Actor. Um, and during his speech, he quoted his late brother, River Phoenix, a, a lyric that River wrote, you know, years ago, uh, saying, run to the rescue with love and people will follow. This was on Sunday night. Right. Sunday morning. We get a call from a slaughterhouse who has a cow and a calf. And they called uh, Sean Munson, uh, who did the film Earthlings, and his partner, Amy, who runs LA Animal Save. So they've been in touch with the slaughterhouse. So the slaughterhouse reached out to them. They reached out to me and asked if we were able to provide homes for this cow and calf. And I said yes. Then Sean and Amy called Joaquin. Okay. He was down at the slaughterhouse the Monday after his Oscar acceptance. Wow. And so that's when that process began. It took all of Monday for the USDA to get their paperwork together. And on Tuesday, uh, Joaquin and his mother Hart came back to the slaughterhouse. They were also there on Monday and uh, came with us to the sanctuary where the animals were given a new life. So it was a beautiful thing. And especially following on Joaquin's words at the Oscars and basically it became real the next day, amazingly. It was incredible to watch that sequence play out, the speeches, and then, wow, he, it was really incredible. And then, I, and then I saw you there with him, so it was just, it was really moving to watch. I mean, I think millions of people felt that way watching you. saw it trending through media. It was beautiful, beautiful trend to see go through media. So that was yeah. wonderful. And Joaquin's continuing to do activism. He was just at the LA City Council uh, urging a uh, the city not to the, urging the city to divest of products that are destroying rainforests uh, and not to support companies that are destroying rainforests. He's gotten arrested uh, on Fire Drill Fridays with Jane Fonda protesting the climate crisis. So he's just doing all kinds of amazing things, and and I'm just very grateful for that. Um, you know, but it's uh, and and also when he has spoken you know, at the Oscars and other places, he's also been very humble. He mm -hmm. said, none of us is perfect. And people at our best help each other to improve. And so that's another message that I think is very important and very resonant, especially at this time. Um, but he's still talking real truths and addressing real problems and um, abuses of power that need to be looked at. And he's done it in a very, I think, courageous, but also compassionate and humble way. Right. Well, we're coming up on the end of this talk. I just want to say I'm so thankful for your time. You are a legend, a pioneer. You're so humble as well. You're very human and so down to earth. And I just, I'm so thankful uh, for this time. And I will be writing you more as I have um, lots of advice to ask you about. For example, you brought up the pommel issue and I'm very excited to 
get to know more people in the network, maybe working with that, all sorts of issues. I think what's wonderful about the era of, of communication and media, the way we have it these days, is also quick uh, connectivity. Um, the, I, I have some fondness for the VHS days that we spoke about <laughs> and uh, you know landlines but but I guess the power and the the um, the real practicality of connectivity these days can be also to help these movements and uh, absolutely I mean th this is a technology that can be used in positive ways or otherwise right so exactly. you're doing is creating the space for there to be these real conversations about real issues that are relevant that matter and that can ultimately be empowering so I'm, I'm very grateful for what you're doing and I'm always happy to help or be involved or talk or, you know, whatever I can do. I'm, I'm all about raising awareness and promoting a more humane world uh, and creating relationships with other people, with other animals, with the earth that are mutual and not extractive. So that to me is really key. And I think you're helping that happen. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, thank you for setting a great, uh, um, groundbreaking model on the planet for people to follow. I follow so many sanctuaries. I and I, I I tear up on a regular basis seeing the work people are doing. Also with this media, people can then share the stories of these animals, which then also open minds and hearts. So you launched it, and so thank you very much. And um, until we talk again, sounds great, Annika. Thank you. We're all in it together. Yes. It's, right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Visit us online at pacificrootsmagazine.com.